Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. We can't go back. Just keep moving. Tell me we didn't just go in a circle. It's exactly the same. No, everything's upside down. What happened to the entrance? Wait, there's something here. Today's review is of writer and director John Dowdle's allegorical found footage film As Above, So Below, which is currently streaming on Netflix. Following archaeologist Scarlet's hunt for the Philosopher's Stone takes her and a ragtag crew into the depths of the catacombs underneath Paris, though they find that entering the catacombs is far easier than leaving them. And to help me navigate the haunting twists and turns of the catacombs is returning friend of the show, Bernie. Welcome back, man. Thank you, brother. I, uh... You know, after watching this, I think I can resoundingly say I will never be visiting any kind of catacombs. <laughs> it seems like a bad idea just from the outset, right? Going to wander around a mass grave. That doesn't uh, doesn't strike me as the most brilliant idea to spend a, one's free time. Yeah, I've seen too many movies where like dead people pop out of those things in general. So <laughs> th- this solidified that decision for sure. Absolutely. But uh, in talking about the film, like it's a found footage film first and foremost. What are your thoughts on found footage in general, that kind of style of filmmaking? Because it's a pretty jarring, I mean, it's become very popular in the last decade or so, but I mean, initially, it's a pretty jarring like format change for film. Right. I mean, I think it's hit or miss. You, you obviously have some really good ones and then you have some, you know, not so good ones in that sense. I mean, uh, again, it, I think it's a really good horror genre to have. Um, but it's definitely not kind of the my go-to preference uh, for the horror movies. What about yourself? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm one of those people that it's like I'm a fan of anything that provides scares, quality scares in a new way, right? So a new format is just a new opportunity for new scares and new forms of storytelling. And it's like you said, a lot of the times, like with most things, it's hit or miss. Um, but I think that given the success of movies like Paranormal Activity, and the fact that that film cost almost nothing to make, and then it obviously exploded in terms of the amount of profits and revenue, and it basically kickstarted an entire subgenre. I think people get the wrong idea about found footage a lot of the time, and that it's like, oh, well, it doesn't it cost barely anything to make, so we could kind of just throw a couple of generic scares in there. And it seems like it's one of the genres that gets exploited a lot by people that maybe you're just kind of looking to cash in or they kind of approach it in a way that, hey, this could be a moneymaker rather than, hey, this is the right format for our story. But I mean, in terms of As Above, So Below, do you think it utilizes the format well to tell its uh, Indiana Jones-esque story? Um, I think the the really good thing about this kind of a movie is that there's actually a storyline to build off of. Um, with a lot of these movies, it's just more about ghosts or um, some kind of a, a mythical or spiritual thing, whereas this has more, you know, something of a concrete type of a thing that they're looking for. Um, so again, I think that just helped kind of push along the storyline in terms of narrating it. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely feel like this film has a strong narrative structure what whereas i mean i don't know if the first i think you and i both agree like the first 30 minutes of the story is a little slow and it's a lot of exposition that's kind of just rammed down your throat and 
These are not kind of really the deepest characters. They're pretty paper thin, majority of them, with the exception of Scarlet. And yet, I think the film does a better job of having a driving narrative than a lot of found footage films. Whereas some of the found footage movies I've seen, it feels like it's a moment of scares, but then the story that's connecting all those scares is not necessarily very interesting or feels very kind of meticulous in the way that it's crafted. Whereas As Above, So Below, the film doesn't even start in Paris. It starts in the Middle East somewhere at a dig site. And we get a real scope of the world in a way that I don't think a lot of found footage movies do. And it kind of speaks to the Tomb Raider, Indiana Jones aspect of the story in Scarlet and that she goes to visit this uh, dig site that her father was investigating. And we find out like her trauma with her father. And it's very much kind of a family affair in terms of being dedicated to unearthing artifacts and all of these things. And then that is the main driving force of her character. And that's very clear and established early on in the movie. And then kind of it it's not executed on as well as it could be, I think, in terms of like the more characters we start meeting. They're not they don't have a lot to them other than kind of like what you see is what you get. But then I think that in tying in a lot of like the characters backgrounds to the scares, it really makes the film very a lot more effective than I think most found footage films end up actually being. Yeah, no, I agree. And um, to your point, I mean, I think Scarlet is an interesting, at least she's an entertaining character. Um, Some of the other guys, I mean, maybe outside of like Benji and uh, is it Papillon? Yeah. Yeah. Papillion. Papillion. Everyone else seems kind of bland. Like you said, we didn't even really get to dig too much into like, you know, the two other friends that came along with Papillon. Um, so, you know, again, to that point, there isn't as much character development as you would hope, but uh, I really think that, you know, I th- it kind of drove home the point of why this this started to become a, a better movie in the eyes of the found footage realm uh, is because you did have a couple of relatively entertaining characters that kind of kept the movie pushing forward. Yeah, and I think a lot of that time that is spent establishing characters and their backgrounds, again, like I said, it's not that it's super interesting or engaging, but it's just more that there is something there. And while it's not explored as much as it should be, I feel that a lot of the scares that are later on in the film, tying into that background, even if it's not that deep, it ultimately just gives everything more meaning or more significance. And ultimately, it's scarier, right? I'm very surprised that the Dowdle brothers who wrote and directed this, they had a lot of restraint, I think, in terms of not including a lot of the traditional type of jump scares, right? We're not seeing, it's kind of like what you said earlier, we're not seeing a lot of various um, corpses and ghosts and these things jumping out of dark uh, dark hallways and things like that. It's more about subtle scares that are only scary to a certain character because of the significance behind it. I mean, early on, there's... um, her Scarlet's friend George, he sees a piano down there. And once they get into the catacombs and the the tunnel that they go through collapses, he comes across a piano and he's like, well, this looks just like the one from my childhood. And then he starts giving this anecdote about him and his brother could only play one song. And the song always got fucked up because one of the keys on the piano didn't work. And then he starts playing it and he hits the key in the piano and then it's messed up as well. And so that is a very subtle moment in terms of just like, oh, it's just a piano. And yet 
the significance behind that piano and the history and the trauma that's tied into that, I mean, that's an example of a scare that sticks with me. It's not a, oh my God moment, but it is a very unsettling moment. And it, half of what is unsettling about it is just his reaction. His reaction is just like, well, this is a trip. Like he has that line where he's like, what is going on? And it's one of those moments where you're like, am I in a dream? Am I even awake? And I think that focusing on moments like that rather than, oh, there's a, a guy jumped out of the corridor that I didn't see him if there. It's like, that's not remarkable. That would be indicative of a found footage film that I think everybody kind of expects in terms of generic scares, at least. Right. And, you know, looking at this movie, adding on to that, at least, um, Papillon, before they uh, they go into the, the catacomb area, that's, you know, kind of more... Uh, off the rails in that sense or off the beaten path. Um, he mentions that he had a friend that went down one specific, you know, pathway and he never came back out. Um, and I love that they went, you know, there's basically two ways to get there, right? They went the opposite way, obviously, and they got to the end point of that, that spot. And it was basically where they were to begin with. Um, so I love the mind fuck that it starts taking us down where, you know, not everything is really as it seems in this. Um, but more so, we really have no idea where the hell we're going outside of this being bad. Um, and again, I love like the overtures that this keeps having of hell. Um, I think it's uh, Dante's Inferno, if I'm not mistaken, like the seven or eight rings of hell. They basically hit most of them in this, which is super, super creepy. So again, to that effect, there's there's layers of kind of creepiness and horror that this starts bringing out um that really just again goes to show that the director's really you know great job on this yeah i think that is the true testament to this being a very clear vision of utilizing found footage in a way that it's significant this is the format to tell this story in right you would not be nearly as engrossed in this movie i think as we were had this been a traditional kind of uh filming because there really is something about that first person perspective of being a camera or a head cam that somebody has on that really puts you in their shoes to a certain extent. And there's a lot of found footage movies that I don't think they necessarily need to be told from someone's perspective, but in kind of transitioning into the elements of the film that I think is so phenomenal and what makes it work, you really need to be in their shoes because that's half of what is terrifying. The fact that they're hundreds, if not thousands of miles beneath the earth. And they're in these catacombs for real. Like they really filmed in the catacombs under Paris. They needed to get like the French government to okay and all of these things. And I mean, this is a completely different movie if it was a set and if it was filmed traditionally, because you lose a lot of that claustrophobia. You lose this idea that like anything could be behind you, sneaking up on you, hearing little whispers, those types of things. That does not come across, I think, nearly as well had this been filmed in a more traditional style. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And can we just take a second to note how fucking creepy that little whatever that like religious ceremony that was going on where like everyone's basically naked and they have like, you know, war paint on or something like that. And it's like, you know, this devilish kind of you know colors in the background i mean it was just it was it was fucking gnarly seeing that 
and I I couldn't believe that they kept going through that just on again at a human level. But then the when other shit started happening, they're like, "This is starting to get kind of crazy." I mean, it just that whole entire situation was just fucking nuts. Um, so I I really enjoyed again. You know, there were little sprinkles of stuff like that where um, you find that kind of those kind of scenes in horror movies, but. It's just, it's a little different when, again, like you said, you're in the catacombs, you're in a place where, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people have died. So there's just a different kind of aura about that kind of a movie. And again, I think in a found footage kind of way, they did a really good job of exposing that. Yeah. So outside of the film's kind of unique presentation being found footage, what elements really stood out to you that make this a memorable horror film, not just a memorable found footage film, but just a memorable horror film in general? Um, I think the idea that at the core of this movie, you had everybody going through some kind of a, a battle that if they didn't do a certain thing correctly, they would die versus if they ended up, you know, I don't want to say thinking it through more, but being repentant in some kind of way, they ended up succeeding. Um, so to give an example, um, Papillon, when his friend is in that car that's burning and he, you know, looks at his friend who's, you know, staring at him in the flames and he goes, it wasn't my fault. Obviously, you know, what ends up happening is we find out it was his fault in some kind of capacity, um, but he ends up being... I think that was kind of the most grotesque death too, if we're going to be honest. Um, head is buried, you know, basically waist down or waist up uh, in the dirt with just his legs sticking out. Yeah, that was gnarly. It, that was just a crazy death. Um, versus one like Scarlet realizes that, um, you know, her dad, I think it was, he was, he was, he had hung himself and he was hanging and, you know, he was staring at her. And she hugged him and said, I'm sorry that I didn't pick up your call. And then apparently she ran through without, you know, relatively no troubles after that um, through the catacombs. So I think there was just, again, to that point, there's just layers upon layers in this movie that um, it just it makes it, it, it a better movie than I think it's given credit. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think that had it not had, again, like the psychological uh, element to it where we're really focusing on people that have quote unquote sinned in some way, right? Whether at the, due to that being their fault or just byproduct of actions that they made that didn't have an ill intent and yet someone ended up being hurt as a result of it. Um, we see that with uh, George, where George's little brother drowns because instead of rescuing him, he runs and tries to get help. And he was a child himself, so it's understandable a little kid gets scared he runs to go get mom or dad instead of kind of plunging into the water to save his brother. It, there's no ill intent in his actions, and yet his brother died as a result of the decision that he made. And seeing him being forced to kind of reckon with that, I think is really special in a way, because again, he sees his brother in a brief moment when they're passing through one of the uh, layers of hell, as it were, that or ring of hell rather, he sees him briefly in the water. He sees him underneath and he has a mini meltdown. And yet it never becomes something where it's just very generic, where like his brother jumps out of the water and grabs him and shakes him and says, you did this to me. There's nothing 
that kind of overt about it. It's more subtle. And I mean, uh, Scarlet is a fantastic example, right? She sees her father and she sees him in the first five minutes of the movie too, in a completely different place, which I want to come back to in a minute. But it's not only that she sees his body at the end of the film, and that's because obviously the scares are much more overt or the hell kind of tapping into people's trauma is much more overt. You start seeing things, you start getting attacked in some instances, a few instances. And I think starting out the scares though with like George seeing the piano, Scarlett seeing the phone that rings and answers it, and we don't even hear the conversation that she has with the phone. And yet we know who it is, right? We know that it's her dad repeating the call that he was going to have with her when he was about to kill himself. And that is what makes the film so strong and special, I think. And it's an element that this movie does not get enough credit for. And I think it gets overlooked a lot for it because if you stack this up against a majority of found footage movies, I find that this movie circumvents a lot of the cliches or just issues in general that I have with found footage. I mean, right from the start though, the set, I think this movie has one of the best sets out of any found footage horror movie. And obviously it helps when you're actually there living in that set and being in that space. And I mean, yeah, it looks it looks the part because it is the part, but also like there's something to being down there, I bet, and being surrounded by all of these bones of millions of people that have been buried down there that has to have an impact on your performance in some way, right? I mean, I, I would assume so. I, I think, I, I don't know how they film this, but in some war movies, um, you know, when people are actually at, uh, you know, when they're having a scene that's in an area that had a battle on it or something like that, there's just an aura around them that sometimes is talked about that kind of helps them get into character. I think in this case, you know, it definitely, listen, if I was in any kind of an area that has catacombs or there's been people that, you know, a mass amount of people that have died, I'm sure as hell gonna be a little bit more on guard. Um, to film a, a movie that's, you know, inherently scary, um, I think that just adds a kind of sense to, you know, a sense of unique kind of a dread for, for actors that kind of helps them bring it along in the film. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just the logistics of filming down there, they obviously had to use a lot of handheld cameras and all these things, but the actors themselves had to do their own lighting, I guess. Like the headlamps that they use in the movie is the lighting of scenes. And so kind of just the logistics of factoring that in while you're acting. I mean, I was watching an interview where um, Scarlett and George both said like, you don't act to people's faces in this movie. They're acting to one another's forehead because they have to be kind of cognizant of the fact they're lighting the scene in addition to obviously acting in the scene. So kind of just like the logistics of that in and of itself make this really impressive um, in a way that it all really does come together well. And I don't know about you, I didn't find that there was an excessive amount to shaky cam. I mean, that's like the thing that everybody hates about found footage is that when a character runs, obviously shaky cam, the camera shakes a lot to replicate that. Um, I thought there's a couple instances in this, like in the very beginning and then at the very end where it goes on a little long, but I didn't feel like the film was marred by it nearly as much as some others. Uh, no, I agree. I mean, I, I get sometimes a little queasy when that happens. Um, like Diary of the Dead is a good example of that. that happens quite a bit. Um, I think it held relatively steady. I, I never really kind of thought about that in, in that kind of sense when I was watching it. 
Yeah, and I think that's something that really comes across in terms of molding the entire film around this idea of Dante's Inferno. It's the same idea that like, once they enter, they cannot leave the way they entered. I just want to kind of talk about that, that format for the entire movie. On paper, it sounds very simplistic. Oh yeah, we're going to use Dante's Inferno basically as the structure of this movie. And yet I think the ways in which they incorporate the setting and the psychological scares itself, I mean, I don't think they could have done a better job in terms of that, where each layer of hell is represented, whether it's tapping into a character's trauma or whether it's kind of just the supernatural elements that happen uh, in the specific layers that they enter. What did you think of that? The fact that they're talking about it when they're when it's happening. So like, for instance, um, oh gosh, uh, they were Scarlet and George were crawling through like a crevice and she had mentioned uh, basically a quote um, that, you know, were at the gates of hell and then um, you know, they would crawl in their on their bellies, some something akin to that, um, towards it. Um, she's doing that. It just again, it adds that other that heightened layer of sense of like, okay, some shit's about to happen, but I don't know exactly how or when. Um, it just it continues out throughout the movie like that because again, there is that um, you know haunting treasure or kind of ghostly effect that's going on behind them as well um, I, I mean I loved it what, what about you yeah I really enjoyed it and I think that it gives the film the variety it needs it never kind of feels one note I don't know a lot of found footage movies that might take place in like a haunted house or something like that it kind of just feels like a one note scenario where it, like yeah I'm walking around and there's a bunch of dark rooms here something's going to jump out at me whereas with this I feel like they utilize the locales within the tunnel system really well. And this idea that each area taps into the nine circles of hell, I found was it was done in a way that really kept the movie fresh for me. They really don't return to a lot of scares ad nauseum, kind of like you would expect. You would expect, oh, when they pass through the water, that now it's blood, but maybe they'll see another person in the water or something like that. It never really kind of repeats itself or feels redundant. Um, I thought it was interesting though that they don't read that quote about entering hell until I forget which circle of hell it is, but it's just this idea that like they essentially enter hell as soon as they go through the forbidden passage at the beginning of the movie. Like that would, I think that would have made a little more sense, but that's kind of like a little nitpicky thing. Um, I really did like though this idea that the film kind of taps into all the different, like there's limbo, there's lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, and treachery. This idea, it taps into all of these different sins. And the idea that the scares are built around the sins in a unique way. Like in limbo, they run into the friend of Papillion, who apparently has been dead for two years. And yet he starts displaying these kind of supernatural powers in a way, but it's very subtle. Like when they turn the corner, and he is already at the end of the corridor and it's like a couple hundred yards down there and you're like, this motherfucker's fast or there's something else going on here. And it's never explicitly explained like what is happening with him. It's mostly you're inferring like, oh, this is limbo. He's not a bad person, but he's also not a good person. And there's lots of little layers to the movie like this that I picked up on on a rewatch where I'm kind of paying attention to each thing that happens and obviously doing a little research into the nine circles of hell. Not that 
I'm a, a scholar of Dante or anything, but uh, yeah, I thought that that was a really, really unique angle to take just because there's too much, uh, there's too often a reliance on just like cheap scares that don't really stick with you in a way. And yet in this film, there's so much significance to the scares and the characters themselves that, I mean, it really makes for a very memorable film. Hmm. No, absolutely. And again, I, I think each death has a unique kind of way of happening i mean the only death that didn't really i don't want to say it didn't matter but like zed's death wasn't or i'm sorry zed didn't even die um a girl suksi i didn't necessarily understand her i understood why she died obviously but purpose-driven you know that character the friend basically ran off after that is that correct yeah so yeah, he runs off. That's the friend that um, that reappears that was in limbo. And so I looked it up and that room that they're in or that lair of hell is violence. And it's supposed to be, it says, Suxi is killed in the first ring violence against neighbors. So I don't know if the assumption there is, is that they had some kind of beef with one another in, when the other guy was alive. Maybe they had some kind of conflict or maybe somebody feels compelled to be violent in that room. Um, that is one, though, that definitely is probably the loosest that is not tied into really in a it's not as concrete. I mean, like when you have Benji die at first, you're like, why is this woman keep staring at him in the beginning of the movie? And then you forget about it. And then later, when he's about to ascend furthermore down the rope and down the tunnel, you see that woman again in the background. Not only is that creepy because it's this woman that is like she's dogging him and he doesn't even know it. But then it's also like, what is this thing? Why is this woman with a fake baby or something going after him? Like, what is the deal with that? And then I realized like, oh, he is constantly being the victim of, but not the victim of, but he is constantly like being seduced and falling for that seduction. Like the woman that he sees at the nightclub at the beginning of the film. You're like, why is this woman just mad dogging him the whole time? Like, does she want to bang? Because she looks out of her mind and that does not look like why she is staring at him. She looks like she's got some evil shit planned for him. And it is really this idea that like his attraction and his inability to kind of rebuke her staring at him really is his downfall because he's giving in to seduction in a type of way. And I get I suppose that's why ultimately she throws him down the uh, down the chasm and falls on his neck. Was that that girl that was doing that? Was that the same one that was kind of like leading that prayer at the beginning? Yeah, that's the same girl because she catches his eye immediately and she looks right back at him. And that's why she is always making a beeline for him because she walks by the other two when they go to the club and they don't make eye contact with her. And yet Benji is the one that is constantly making eye contact with her. And once she catches your eye like you cut you two are linked in or locked into one another and i mean that's ultimately i mean in the context of the film that's ultimately his sin that he suffers for um had he i mean as we learn later in the film like it's all about retribution for your sins no matter how severe they are and we'll get into how that plays into the finale of the film but ultimately all of these characters are they have an opportunity to save themselves and yet it's never explained to them, right? It's kind of this its kind of this dark comedy. And I mean, it is. Dante's Inferno is a dark comedy in a certain way where everybody has the option to be saved in a certain way. It's never explicitly told how they do that. I suppose if 
you're a religious person, you know, like you have to atone for your sins and admit to your sins if you want to get into heaven. And yet there's never like a figure that shows up that's like, you must atone for your sins now or you'll be damned forever. But I just think that whole context gives this movie a significant layer to it that had it not had, this would have been just another kind of generic wandering around in the dark kind of found footage movie. So there is a fair bit of backtracking towards the end of the film, right? The last probably 20 minutes of the movie, there's some backtracking in there. Literally, Scarlet runs from point Z back to point A to a certain extent. Um, what did you think, though, of the way that they reuse sets? Because initially, when they find one of the rooms, they pass through like a portal. And the portal essentially is a mirror world, So, which ties into the title of the film, As Above, So Below. And this idea that the world is flipped on its head where you are in the real world, now you are in essentially hell. Um, what did you think, though, kind of, of the way that they revisit sets? I mean, it it was interesting. I, I don't know that we got too, too much, because it was kind of a breeze when she's running by them. Um, the the one thing that, again, I, I really enjoyed about that whole scene was as she's going through that, again, the first time she's interacting like you know some kind of ghouls she has hands popping up out of that bloody water um she even gets pulled down at one point right um and i we mentioned this earlier but after she kind of repents um and you know apologizes to her dad um she sprints through i mean she's usain bolting it and she got through that entire process in like under five minutes it seemed like um but again the climb up you know, we saw them climbing down um, that hundred foot uh, well or whatever it was, right? Um, the fact that she could get up there, um, you know, again, credit to her in that sense. I mean, she's a trooper for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really enjoyed the idea of them revisiting sets, but so long as they are altering it, right? It's not just kind of like in a video game where it's like, oh, I found this puzzle piece. Now I have to go back 10 minutes that way and just revisit the same old, same old. In this, I like that they altered things a little bit. Like when they go through that river of water and uh, originally George sees his brother and then now it's a river of blood, right? It's this idea that things are the same and yet they've changed a little bit. Um, I was a fan of that even if ultimately, I suppose I wouldn't necessarily want them to have to backtrack. I would want kind of a fleshing out of the layer of hell that they're on now. And yet, if they have to backtrack, I think they did a good enough job of kind of giving her her moment of redemption um, and getting to kind of like apologize to her deceased father um, who had killed herself. And she kind of like hugs his body and apologizes. And then, like you said, she kind of is all green lights up until getting back, uh, back down to her friends. Um, one thing I want to highlight about her and her father's arc, in the very beginning of the film, when she's at the dig site and then the guards are like looking for them because they're going to blow up the ruins. She does see her father's body. She sees him hanging from a rope. Obviously he hung himself. So she sees him hanging in this archeological dig. And yet why, why does she see him in that moment? I think the idea behind it was she, he wanted to go to that spot um, and he never did. And the information she got from that led her to the ultimate 
you know thing that he was looking for essentially that's that's kind of my take on it but um yeah that that was another one of the you know one of the many things that happen in horror movies where you just have to kind of accept it for what it is and sometimes there isn't too much meaning behind just trying to create a good narrative that's the thing man i was trying to figure out on this rewatch whether that was kind of just a scare that they decide to throw in there or a a sudden moment or is it speaking to this larger narrative that's happening right like you said essentially her being at the dig site will eventually lead her to the philosopher's stone in paris underneath in the catacombs and i don't know if that was supposed to be an indication that like there are supernatural forces at play that are dragging her to this location in the catacombs and whatnot so that was one of those little things where i was like am i reading too into too much into this or is this kind of just a cheap scare but uh i really enjoyed that ending scene too that last kind of three or four minutes where they get to that final pit and this idea the only way to get up and out is to go further down this idea that i mean it relates again to dante this idea i think in the story he has to crawl from like the devil's belly button down his navel or something like that to just escape and it's like you have to keep going down to find your salvation. Um, And I like the idea that the three of them basically have that moment where they repent all together for their sins. Um, Again, in the context of the film, what are considered sins? Um, And then of course you get that fantastic shot of them finding the sewer grate and then they kind of push down on the sewer grate and then it's them falling onto the surface, which I love that shot. No, I I enjoyed it too. And um, I think the weirdest thing for me in this movie, and you you might disagree with me, I was kind of surprised that basically half of the guys that, or half of the people that went down actually came out alive. Um, I was expecting it to be a little bit more bloody, um, or it's more of a death count. What was your kind of thought on that overall? Was that satisfying for you? So I'm very surprised to learn that this movie is rated R. I did not think that this movie was, it was definitely creepy and it was very unsettling for a majority of the film. I mean, some of the scares don't hit as hard on a rewatch. We both kind of talked about this a little bit before we recorded, but there isn't anything super, with the exception of uh, Suxi getting beaten to death or bludgeoned to death, there isn't a lot of like gore or blood in the movie. I mean, obviously George gets uh, bitten by one of those monsters that comes out of the wall, but I can't remember a lot of like super graphic deaths, um, which, you know, I'm actually a fan of that. I'm a fan for this type of film that the scares were so psychological to kind of just kill everybody off in a really bloody manner. I don't think would have jived as well. In fact, I think that all of the legwork that they put in the beginning of the film in focusing on the psychological aspect of it would have really been undercut by them just being like, yeah, and then he gets bitten and eaten to death or whatever. Um, I really did like Papillion's death, though, like you talked about, this idea that he basically gets sucked into the vehicle, the car that's burning, of the kid that he was involved in his death, but then it ends up with his legs being the only thing, he gets sucked into the ground, and his legs are sticking straight up in the air, but his lower, his upper half is in the ground now. Like That is a super disturbing moment that, uh, that still caught me off guard on a rewatch, but... Um, in terms of the body count, I think I like the idea that there are a significant amount of survivors because it shows that these characters are willing to confess to their sins for to a certain extent, right? These people that are willing to have that introspective moment and for 
an entire group of people to be so conceited and not willing to atone for their sins in a way, like it would have made the characters that much more unlikable, I think. This idea that, I mean, Zed, he know, he knowingly abandoned a kid that he had with a woman that he wasn't married to. And he confesses to this and he lives, he, he admits the fact that, yeah, I have a son that I abandoned and I don't recognize. I don't think I would have wanted that guy to survive if he wasn't willing to do that. You know what I mean? Because it's just like, or even if he did survive, I mean, he's just a scumbag then, right? So I think the idea that his character survives, at least he took the first step. He's willing to admit a wrong. And in admitting a wrong, he's acknowledging that kid's existence and he's acknowledging his own faults. And if anything, I mean, he's a thin character. You only find out about that element of his character in the last, what, 90 seconds of the movie or two minutes of the movie. And yet that little moment gives me some sort of respect or it gives me the inkling that like, this is a character I might feel different about than I did the rest of the movie. I feel like I was able to form somewhat of a significant feeling about this character rather than him just being like a fucking nothing, which he was for three fourths of the movie. He's just a character. But now he's a character that is willing to reflect and atone for that, which, which he is wronged in doing. Mm -hmm. And you know, the thing that I enjoyed uh, about the ending too, though, when they get out, he just kind of walks off and George and Scarlett are standing there. I don't know why, because it is kind of a silly ending to that effect, but it does kind of speak to his character. Like he wasn't necessarily important to the movie. Um, he made it out, obviously, thankfully for him, but um, he was not central in any way. So the movie literally ends with him walking away and the camera just kind of more focusing on George and Scarlett. Uh, so again, I think, you know, coming back to that layers part of this movie, um, the director just did a really good job of, you know, finding a way to, to really hit home his concept. Yeah, it's kind of an optimistic ending, no? Like, I was expecting, originally when I watched this movie, I was expecting, oh, this is going to have a super dark, disturbing ending. You can't go to hell and not have a fucked up ending. And yet, the movie ends on a, I would say, an up, not upbeat, but definitely optimistic. This idea that, hey, they literally went through hell and they were able to overcome this trauma. And that's kind of like a feel-good moment. And yet... I don't know. I don't know if the movie, how, how do you feel about how the movie ended? Do you think it should have ended on that optimistic note? Or do you feel that maybe it should have ended a little darker? Because it does kind of just end, obviously. It's a very abrupt ending. I mean, there isn't any, there isn't much more to the story to tell, right? They escape and they're relieved and then they have the rest of their lives, supposedly. But what did you feel about kind of just the end note of the film? You know, I think when me and you talked way back when about like 47 meters down, I think we hated the ending because it, it should have ended on a bad note on her dying essentially, instead of this feel good way. I don't know if there's a way that they could have done that type of a, a powerful ending or theory ending if, for this movie. Um, but I, again, I think the way that the movie went where they essentially atoned for their sins, that's the only logical way for this movie to really end, right? So that effect, narratively speaking, I, I appreciate it. But 
again, we've talked about this. I, I think uh, there's a part of these types of movies where you want to have a certain level of gore. It doesn't have to overtake the movie, but um, I would have wanted to see some kind of crazy thing happen to George or, you know, something where it isn't just all feel good and smiles at the end of this thing. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's kind of my take. What about you? Yeah. So I would agree. And I think it's a, great comparison to 47 meters down because I think in that movie you don't care about the characters to a certain extent past like oh I hope they survive or oh I hope they don't right you don't know anything about those characters other than Mandy Moore is trying to escape her shitty boyfriend or something to that extent like you don't care about them whereas the characters in this film well they aren't that deep I don't think I think it's basically just kind of they're very thin characters at the same time enough time is dedicated to experiencing their trauma or learning what their trauma is, the events behind that trauma. And in seeing them overcome that trauma, it it is a satisfying ending in that regard, right? This idea that these people are able to go through hell and they are able to reconcile with the fact that some of my actions caused something horrible to happen that's traumatizing. Getting to see them overcome that end a traumatizing scenario, I think you have, like you said, you have to end it on somewhat of a optimistic, if not upbeat note. Um, I, I think I would have had a, it's one of those things where you care for the characters, you want to see them succeed. Generally, if a film has an, has a, um, like a, a mean as hell ending or something like that, where it's like, no, we're going to fuck with these characters still, even though they succeeded. Generally that works better when you aren't really invested in the characters in a big way. Um, but yeah, I think I do agree though, that something else had to happen afterwards to kind of just reinforce this idea that like they escaped hell, but hell is still very much a part of the world. I would have loved for in that moment when George and Scarlett are walking along the riverbank, if there was like some old man there on the piano and he starts playing George and his brother's favorite song or something like that, that would have been such a great like 10 second moment. That's just like, Hey, you've escaped hell and yet hell will always be here. And somebody else is more than likely going to end up in hell at some point. Um, but that's wishful thinking on my part, <laughs> but in uh, rounding out, was there anything else you wanted to mention about as above? So below? No, I mean the, the only other thing I guess I could say, I think character wise, uh, like the actors that they got, they were all right. Um, I, I would probably say Scarlett was the, the best actor, the most entertaining actor. Um, I've seen in a found footage film in a while, but I think the cast overall is a little bit underwhelming. What, what about you? Yeah, I would say definitely it's Perdita Weeks who plays Scarlett and Ben Feldman who play George. Um, they are definitely the stronger of uh, the group. I think the other characters, again, they're pretty thin and they're even more thin than Scarlett and George because you only learn about their kind of transgressions or their sins about three or four minutes before they die or before they're about to escape and live. Um, so in that regard, obviously when you have a bigger cast, it's hard to kind of give credence to all of them and to give them all this importance. And yet they were pretty underwhelming for a majority of the film. Um, the leads I think were fine. They were okay. It's just the story that is telling their background and their history is just not that interesting to be honest. It's weird. The, the, the first 30 minutes that's all dedicated to setting up the film I don't think it's necessarily like very remarkable and yet it gives so much significance to the rest of the film, to the back half of the film that 
it on its own, it's whatever. But if you don't have those moments, then the significance in the back half of the movie is completely lost and it kind of undercuts everything. And then this entire movie would just be underwhelming. Whereas I think once you kind of push through that first 30 minutes, that's underwhelming. You get into some really memorable, creepy and remarkable moments for a found footage film. I mean, I don't know about you. This is probably not only one of the most unique found footage films for me, but it really is very unsettling. Even on a rewatch, like we said, it's not as scary on a rewatch. And yet the psychological scares are super disturbing and super chilling again, just because you see how it affects the characters. It's not because to you and I, it's a piano, it's a phone, it's a burning car. And yet, well, there's a corpse in the car. So yeah, that would be fucking scary. But I mean, in general, it's items that are very normal to us. And yet when we see how it affects the other characters, there is something very chilling about that. And I think it is a strength of just the thought that went into this film and kind of how meticulously crafted it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would you say that this is top three found footage film for you? It's top three or it's top five. I think it's top five just because I have two, there's uh, two films that I, recently saw that were found footage that I really, really enjoyed. I kind of pushed to the top of my uh, my list. What, what's your top five then, real quick? Oh, man. Um, let's see. So I just watched a movie, found footage film, or it's a desktop found footage film. So it's basically a Zoom chat. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of this film called Host? Uh, no. It came out over the summer. It was only 50 minutes. It's super short, and yet it's super unsettling. And I mean, it was filmed in quarantine, so there's that element to it. Um, but I think just it being in a zoom call and that being how the film unfolds is super engrossing and super terrifying. And again, it's only, it's not even an hour long, so it feels fresh and scary for that hour. Um, that there's a film called the den, which is another, uh, found footage desktop movie. I would have to say the VHS movies for anthology horror. Those are definitely terrifying. Um, and I mean this, of course. And I don't know, maybe Cloverfield. I think Cloverfield is a pretty flawed movie. And yet mm-hmm. I really like how they incorporate found footage into what's essentially a Godzilla movie. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's a really cool angle. And like I said, the film is pretty flawed on a rewatch. There is an egregious amount of shaky cam like we talked about earlier, but it is a very cool and original format to tell a monster story. And so those are my five. What about you? No Blair Witch Project for you? No, that uh, so I not to fucking shit on that movie, which is basically like the grandfather of found footage movies, but that movie only has one or two moments in it that really stood out for me. Like the end of that movie is super disturbing. Like that's probably one of the most disturbing endings I've seen in terms of found footage, just because there's no clear cut answer and it's very simplistic. And I think in the simplicity, it's something that you could see happening potentially. Um, Oh, there is another found footage movie that's good, but it's not my top five that you would probably like. I believe it's called Hell House LLC. It's a found footage movie that takes place in a haunted house. um, That's actually pretty entertaining. There's a good, there's a good like last 45 minutes of that movie. Um, But yeah, that's one that you would probably like. But what about you? What are your found footage? Um, I haven't, I haven't delved too, too much into found footage. I've probably only seen like maybe six or seven films in the found footage genre, but I would say my top three would be in, in no uh, no order necessarily. Um, this movie, 
Cloverfield and Blair Witch Project because again Blair Witch Project for all its faults that ending where that guy is standing in the corner I still I have horrifying nightmares about that so um, yeah like (laughs) that, that definitely left an impact so I just remembered another found footage movie which completely fucks up my list so take Take out my, I did none of my found footage movies are ranked. Forget the ranking. These are just some of my favorites. There's another found footage movie that you'd like on Netflix. That's called Creep. It's about this guy that, that gets hired for a Craigslist uh, ad of some sort to film a video. Um, and that is super uncomfortable and disturbing. And that's one that everybody should watch. So Creep is on Netflix. But uh, yeah, man, I'm, I mean, I was so fortunate to get to revisit this movie because this is a movie that does get overlooked a lot i think and i'm not sure why to be honest i don't know why in the larger context of found footage this gets overlooked because it has an incredible set and it has some smarter scares in it than you're used to um even if its characters aren't necessarily the greatest but as always man it's a pleasure chatting horror with you i appreciate you having me on man thank you so much If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram and at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.